Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. My guest this week is Mike Safian, Senior Director, Launch and Global Ground Station Networks at Planet. Planet, previously known as Planet Labs, is an Earth observation company which has launched a fleet of over 200 satellites to monitor the Earth. This podcast was recorded at the Canadian SmallSat Symposium, which was held last week in Toronto. Planet has become the largest operator of satellites in orbit, with 148 active imaging satellites. It should be noted, though, unlike the large, school bus-sized satellites in geosynchronous orbit, nearly all of Planet's satellites are microsatellites weighing in at under 100 kilograms and roughly the size of a microwave oven and are in low-Earth orbit. Mike and I discussed recent news at Planet with an eye to the future, along with a discussion on their ongoing ground station problem in Canada. This problem led them to announce at the Canadian SmallSat Symposium that they were going to pull out their ground stations in Inuvik after June 1st if their licensing issues aren't resolved by Global Affairs Canada. Before we get to the interview, a word from our sponsor, MDA. MDA is an internationally recognized leader in space robotics, satellite antennas and subsystems, surveillance and intelligence systems, defense and maritime systems, and geospatial radar imagery. Founded in 1969, MDA is recognized as one of Canada's most successful technology ventures with locations in Richmond, Ottawa, Brampton, Montreal, and Halifax. MDA is a Maxar Technologies company. For more information, visit mdacorporation.com. Let's start with your constellation of Earth observation satellites. How many satellites are in orbit, in service, and can you break down the number by type? Mm -hmm. So uh, I'll focus on the actively imaging satellites, but we have five RapidEye satellites, 130 Dove satellites that are actively imaging in sun-synchronous orbit, and then we have 13 SkySats flying with eight more under construction. So not only is this the world's largest fleet of remote sensing satellites, it's the world's largest fleet of satellites, period. Now, doing some quick math, that's less than 200 now. Yeah, I thought it was at 200. Right, so then we can also count the ones that, are, that were launched and deployed from the space station that are slowly decaying. Um, and uh, we also have some uh, like older missions that, are, that are, have been de-emphasized in terms of producing product, but we still do long-term testing of components and things like that. So with the satellites that you have in orbit that are active imaging, mm-hmm. uh, you can now image the whole planet. He, well, so yeah, the, so our, our mission one success point was that we could uh, image the entire Earth's landmass every 24 hours. Um, but we're actually starting to expand that a little bit into ocean monitoring. Um, and uh, with the sky sets, there are also some pretty nifty capabilities in terms of uh, HD video or nighttime imaging. These are all kinds of things that are outside of uh, our core mission, but we're just starting to explore um, how we can utilize those, those additional capabilities. So uh, what was that, that day where you were able to image the whole Earth? Do you remember the day? Uh, the exact day? I don't remember the exact day. We've, we've had um, a gradual ramp up, and I think one of the things that happened was that there was a, a fairly significant launch bottleneck where the, the easiest way to get into orbit was to the space station. And so we launched and deployed a lot of satellites from there, but our 
commercial orbit is really sun synchronous orbit. And so we first got uh, 12 doves of our you know, latest generation on a PSLV, and then we did 88, and then we did 48 uh, on a Soyuz. And all that happened within kind of the time span of, of um, 18 months. And so those three launches put together, uh, when talking about the doves specifically, that's what allowed us to hit uh, whole Earth daily. That Indian launch was quite something. I mean, 104 satellites, I think, all told on, on that launch. That's right. And, and the coolest part was that the uh, that ISRO, the Indian Space Agency, put a camera on board. So you could see every single satellite getting deployed. And it's pretty it's pretty mind-blowing. They have a video on YouTube with, like, an uh, awesome soundtrack. It's worth checking out. I haven't checked it out yet, but I will. And I'll include it in a link in the uh, podcast notes. So... Now that you can uh, image the planet uh, every day, um, what does this mean to your business and for your customers? Mm -hmm. So now the company's focus turns to deriving insights from the pixels that we're producing. And so when you think about the sheer volume of data that we're downlinking and capturing of the planet, um, it's just too much for any single person or team of analysts to really comb through. And we think that um, there's uh, a lot of value to be um, to be uncovered when we start moving into analytics, you know, doing some machine learning, learning algorithms on, on top of the data. And uh, one of the more exciting uh, pieces of, of recent news is that we hired Shauna Wolverton, who is one of the top execs at Salesforce, so who has this experience of, of software product at scale. And that's really where the company is driving to now. Does AI fit into the picture? Generally, yes. I mean, yeah, we're we're enabling the data set so that it's easily used by machine learning algorithms and different types of AI. Uh, I'm not expert enough to split hairs on the terms, but basically, we're we're using machine computation to get insights out of out of the data. Okay. Um, is your customer base growing now that you can image the whole planet each day? Uh, yes, and, and, and there's plenty of room to go. So <clears throat> there are traditional remote sensing customers. So we have a big contract with the U.S. government under an NGA vehicle. Um, we're working with a lot of commercial companies as well. Uh, and and those are our customers that are used to working with remote sensing data. But we're also making headway in industries that um, are that have a great potential to benefit from this data but and don't even need to see imagery to get uh, to get value out of it. So we're working with insurance markets, for instance, that they don't necessarily want to see um, a scan of, of the U.S., but they would like to get a number of how many swimming pools are in backyards in this region and compare that to their own database to see are their claims being um, you know, adjusted properly or do they need, to, they need to change how they operate. And so it's that type of uh, insight that this data unlocks. Are your customers asking you for data sets, products that you hadn't even thought of? I think it's so the nice thing about the the fleet is especially with with the medium res, so the rapid eye and the and the doves, we're capturing the entire earth no matter what. So it's never a question of did we get a picture of that place? We already have it ready. Where the surprises come, I think is uh, the applications of that data. And so 
you know, the recent example uh, that, that I liked was um, there was some imagery of a mountainside in North Korea that we could actually see a shift that indicated there was an underground nuclear test. And so I didn't think that that type of thing was possible, but um, we have people who are, you know, watching North Korea's um, nuclear program, and, and it's this type of data that really helps bring uh, fact to conversation where it's, it's hard to get reliable information from the other side. So that brings up an interesting question, which is getting data that you didn't expect that might have um, sensitive issues um, that you might release but maybe you shouldn't have released or how do you deal with like something in particular with this the, the North Korean data that you got right we we believe uh, in the democratization of access to information and so this this data is already being collected by governments and being collected by um, entities like that and so it's already in the hands of certain people, but we think uh, this kind of like sunshine effect is that if we can level the playing field so everyone knows what's going on and there's no information disparity there, then that promotes better behavior. You get pushback from uh, the government? Well, so there, there are already uh, restrictions on uh, in place from the U.S. government who regulates these types of things. There's certain customers that we're not allowed to sell to, which generally align with our um, our ethics anyway. And so, for the most part, um, we're not stepping into you know sensitive sensitive topics anyway. Especially because of the resolutions we're talking about. The doves are three to five meter per pixel. Skysats are are better resolution. They're 0. 0.8, but certainly not um, you know the type of military grade stuff that uh, some of the other operators are working with. Are we going to see doves with uh, higher resolution? So the, the acquisition of Skysat. Uh, so when we when we purchased the Skysat fleet from Google, um, brought in that high res capability in house. And so we, what we think the real value is is having both the medium resolution and the high resolution in one coordinated system. This concept uh, sometimes referred to as tip and queue. So the challenge with high res is that you have to know where you want to look. Um, and uh, what you can do with a medium res global coverage system is say, hey, there was some change here that we're not quite sure what's going on. And you go in and task the SkySat to go and investigate further, and now you have a clearer picture. Um, whereas uh, if you only had one system or the other, there, there would be that kind of um, deficiency of getting a, a really clear picture of A, where to look, and then B, what's going on there. What about synthetic aperture radar? Ever considered uh, putting an instrument like that on? Uh, obviously, it would be problematic on a dove because it's so small. But yeah, so you know, one of the things uh, the, the Sentinel program is, is putting out uh, SAR data that we see our, our platform as um, one of the big benefits of how we're approaching these these challenges, and so we can mix data sets from different types of sensors. It doesn't have to just be doves or skysats or rapid eye. So we already ingest Landsat, we're ingesting uh, Sentinel, and there are other efforts to you know, increase the number of SAR sensors out there. We'll ingest those too. And so putting together um, all those data sources and then again driving that towards insights to customers that maybe don't even want to look at pixels, that's kind of the ultimate goal here. 
And what about um, making your data available to third parties who want to package it with their products? Uh, an example would be, since here we are at the Canadian Small Sat Symposium, uh, Skywatch, uh, who are, uh, are building what they're calling an Earth Cache platform that aggregates data from providers globally. Would you... Um, uh, you know, offer your data to them to, I, I suppose it would be reselling it in an aggregate to their customers? Yeah, we already have a number of, of uh, agreements like that in place, and, and we recognize that in certain cases, there's probably other partners that are better suited to get the data, like, to you know, the last mile to the customer. Uh, one great example is working with a Canadian company called Farmer's Edge, and they have a precision agriculture uh, product that they are much better tuned into the individual farmer. Um, and so we provide them with the data. They add uh, additional insights and, and um, derived value from that, and then they deliver that to farmers. And so that's, that's a really great partnership that we have with them. And so there are all kinds of cases where we think we'll continue to see that. Have you had discussions with Skywash? Uh, I'm, I'm probably not the right person to ask that. Uh, I thought I'd throw it out there. Yeah. It's possible, but um, I'm not on that, on that specific team. So... Um, Will you need to uh, replenish uh, the constellation this year? Well, uh, so the the doves are designed with a two to three year lifetime. Skysats uh, have a six year lifetime, and the Rapid Eye we expect to continue to operate beyond twenty twenty. And so, with the doves, um, we baked that replenishment uh, timeline in on purpose. One of the advantages is that we can continuously upgrade the technology. As battery technology gets better, as um, computer processing gets better, more power efficient, all that kind of stuff gets folded in. So our satellites are basically uh, keeping pace with your smartphone. So that's pretty good. So um, I know that you, uh, with each iteration, you update the software. (laughs) And of course, you do some hardware upgrades as well. But is there any New type of uh, instrumentation that you're that you might be adding to the uh, to the doves that you can talk about. We look at uh, you know improvements in the CCD sensor uh, industry, um, looking at different spectral bands, and uh, I think the it's not only software or hardware. Oftentimes, we'll make improvements on manufacturability, and so when our dove manufacturing line is at kind of full swing, we can do. Oh, uh, roughly 20 satellites a week that's like fully integrated and tested and ready for launch. Um, and so being able to do that volume of manufacturing um, in an you know, efficient and reliable way, sometimes we need to make changes to the design that maybe didn't change the um, actual performance of the satellite, but just uh, ease of testing or ease of manufacturing, things like that. So there's all kinds of axes where we're improving the satellite process. But you're not actually manufacturing up to 20 a week. We've done that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, we delivered 88 uh, for a PSLV launch just last year. And um, yeah, that's I, as far as I can tell, that's a, a world record. And we did it in, in record-breaking time. Now, do you keep uh, you know a, a little warehouse of... Uh, ready-to-go doves? We, uh, yes and no. Or, or do you plan it based on what you expect your next launch window to be and then you ramp up as you lead to that? Yeah, it's kind of a delicate balance because they, oftentimes uh, we'll see launch delays 
from the launch industry, and it's, it's getting better over time, but it's still hard to really plan on when a launch will go. And so we'll have some uh, components that we'll have in stock, but also we keep updating the technology. And so if in certain cases, if the launch delays, that's actually great for us, because then we can roll in a newer technology than we, have la- we would have launched six months prior. Um, and so we, uh, you know, to the credit to the, the manufacturing team, it's it's actually a really nice balance of keeping stuff on hand, but also pushing forward the technology and you know dynamically adapting to launch needs as they as they shift around. So you've been at this for a while in terms of manufacturing the satellites. Have you got your production? system in place that you're actually seeing measurable uh, uh, reduction in costs? In terms of, I think maintaining cost while increasing capability is is the rough way I would, I would put that. Um, and then that's partly because we're just riding the wave of, of innovation from other industries. So we don't have to do deep R&D into CCD center, sensors like the camera industry is already doing that. And so those, it, it's, it's, a, it's a similar thing as with your smartphone, right? You're roughly paying the same amount of money for each generation of a phone, but it's just getting better and better. And that's kind of the trend that we're following as well. Now, you talked about launch um, reliability, I suppose, in terms of scheduling. Mm -hmm. Um, You just launched, uh, I believe it was one satellite on the uh, Rocket Lab. That's right, uh, Dove Pioneer. Right. So um, you must have had quite the confidence in them that this was going to happen. Yeah, we. so that that was a case where we had a satellite sitting on the shelf. Um, And uh, for us, we see Rocket Lab as a really important long-term partner. And um, it was a useful exercise for us to go through the process of preparing for a launch, getting our teams working together, understanding the deployment schemes. And um, they, uh, they built a custom deployer for us, which they then now use for other CubeSat missions as well. And that worked out fine. And that was one of the, the big testing objectives for that launch for us. And so, uh, yeah, in, in certain situations, we're willing to take uh, a bit of a higher risk on a newer launch provider because we want to support the industry. We want um, launch capacity to, to flourish. Did you bother to get uh, insurance for the satellite for this launch? Or Not for that one, yeah. No. So it brings up an interesting point because um, you've launched this, the space station, ISRO, uh, Russia. Uh, Rocket Lab provides you with the ability to have a dedicated small sat launcher that puts it right into the orbit that you want, right, without any extra effort. Mm-hmm. You, you see that as uh, something that's uh, critical to, your, to the business? It is, it is a benefit. I mean, I, I will say that the traditional providers uh, are offering capability um, that can get us pretty close to where we want to go. So sun synchronous missions um, for bigger satellites w- will go to the right inclination, but maybe the altitude's too high. But, but uh, vehicles like PSLV or Soyuz, for instance, can do multiple burns. So they'll drop off the primary at one altitude, and then they'll take us down to where we want to be. So, and at, at pretty competitive rates. But there are other situations where having our own launch vehicle has a lot of benefit. We can con- completely control the schedule. And yeah, if we want to go to a very specific orbit, they can do that for us. Um, and just being in control uh, and treated as kind of like uh, you know the primary payload uh, makes a difference. Makes a difference in certain situations. And uh, I haven't checked, but will you be uh, using any other new launch providers like Vector? 
We're certainly looking at uh, the new launch providers. There's a lot out there at various stages of um, development. And so we think uh, the more the more the, the better. Uh, and there's plenty of satellite demand out there. So I, we think that this, you know, the satellite uh, industry and the launch industry are going to kind of grow together. And I think that having more options makes it just a more robust uh, market and industry. There's a possibility that uh, Maritime Launch Services, a new company, uh, could be building a spaceport in Nova Scotia. Uh, we should know in the next few months if their environmental assessment comes back without any issues and if they, they, they uh, close their, their first round of funding. Uh, they're going to be using a Ukrainian-derived uh, rocket, or Ukrainian-built rocket, I should say, that's an upgrade. Uh, it's a medium-lift capability. Would that be ever something that you would want to use to launch X number of doves? Mm-hmm. I, yeah, in, in general, it doesn't really matter to us what technology we use to get to space. You know, is it... Um, you You're know, launcher agnostic? Yeah, exactly. We just want to get to the right orbit at a reasonable you price. Want re- reliability and reasonable price. Yeah, and so, uh, so with specific projects like that, if, if they can pull it off, then, then I think that'll be... Now, India already offers a relatively good price. Mm-hmm. Is Rocket Lab um, competitive? So Rocket Lab, uh, they're in the same ballpark, and they do offer the value of, of being a primary, you know, buying a dedicated, which, which uh, as I was saying, in certain situations um, m- makes it a better deal. Uh, but, yeah, we're always cost-sensitive. I mean, we're, um, we, we have a limited budget, and um, we have to do the best we can. Okay, so let's uh, switch gears now. Um, you're in Canada. Uh, you built a, a ground station uh, in the Yukon um, that is still offline. That's right. Uh, Global Affairs Canada has been conducting what it calls a significant review of the Remote Sensing Space Systems Act and hopes to have it completed this spring or summer, at which point it might make some policy changes. However, it likely won't be until the fall of this year before any actual regulatory changes could be uh, put forward for a consultation. Then there would be the formal set of consultations of these uh, these changes before new legislation is written. written. Uh, That will take some time and could very well go uh, go into the mandate of the next government after the 2019 election. Uh, This would be two to three years... Um, beyond when Global Affairs was uh, given the review by the Institute of Air and Space Law at McGill, uh, where they made significant recommendations. Um, And I should say that uh, to our listeners, you can go to our website, spaceq.ca, enter PLANET or RSSSA to get uh, that report and more information on PLANET. But what are your thoughts on this, and and do you have an update on the progress of of your application? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's two kind of parallel things going on. So first of all, there's our specific application in Inuvik in the Northwest Territories. And yeah, so we have four antennas that have been fully built. Uh, fully licensed by ICED, so we have our RF license in place. We got all the green lights from our U.S. regulators, and we're still waiting for um, a a response on our application from GAC. 
And so uh, we feel that we've been very reasonable with GAC and very patient. But this June will mark the two-year anniversary that we've submitted our application and have seen no, no official answer here. And that's incredibly problematic for us because we, we didn't build those antennas just for, for them to sit around. We actually need that capacity. And Inuvik's a great place to have antennas operating, but they need to be operating. So what we've told GAC and what we announced uh, earlier today was that uh, if we don't get a license uh, from GAC by June 1st, then we're going to be moving those two antennas out. We're going to deconstruct them, move them somewhere else. Uh, we're working with our ground station partner, KSET, to identify a suitable location. Uh, there are locations in Norway that uh, would be a great fit for that. And so it's a shame to see infrastructure and investment leaving Canada and going somewhere like Norway. Um, but that's kind of the state of affairs. We just can't wait around forever. And uh, so June 1st is that first deadline. And uh, we're going to continue to work with GAC. But if we can't get... Um, some assurance that there's movement here and that this this application is being treated fairly and, and timely, then we're going to move the other two antennas out somewhere else and we'll basically divest our ground station infrastructure from Canada. So it's my understanding that uh, Global Affairs Canada, GAC, uh, usually takes no more than 180 days to review these cases. Yeah. And now we're talking, if it goes to June... Uh, two years, which is substantially longer. And, and from what I understand, they've never had to go beyond the 180 days. So what's so different about your case that, uh, and also your the provider, KSAT, which is uh, has other antennas there, I believe, as well, that they built that are offline. What's the difference about uh, your case that, that's taking such a significant amount of time? It's a good question, and I wish I knew the answer. I think that's, that's something to ask GAC. The challenge is that the process is incredibly opaque. Like We just don't know what are the holdups, what are the concerns. We'd love to address concerns if we knew what they were, but we just get no insight into the process. And I think that this is just one example of how broken the RSSSA is. If you read the regulations, it says... Um, you know, they're supposed to do this within 180 days, but if they don't, all they really owe us is a letter that says they've gone past 180 days, and which is kind of what we got, right? So um, there's, and you know, these kinds of things are outlined in the McGill uh, review, but there's just all kinds of ways that uh, GAC and the RSSSA are out of date and out of touch, and it's incredibly frustrating, and these are the consequences that we're just going to have to move our infrastructure out if GAC can't respond in time. So other than telling you that they're reviewing this, mm -hmm. have they said anything? Have they asked for any extra information? Yeah, we've provided all the information that uh, they've asked for in terms of, um, you know, the, one of the things is, is that they look at the whole uh, remote sensing system, which includes the satellites, how we protect our data, um, other ground stations that we have that aren't in Canada, which frank frankly is totally outside the norm of what we're used to um, in installing ground stations in other places because the system is already licensed in the U.S. NOAA, under the Department of Commerce, has already done these types of reviews. Um, but for whatever reason, GAC feels that it's in their purview to do this again, and they do it much more slowly. Um, and uh, it's just been terribly unsatisfying in this process. So uh, we feel like we've given them everything that they've needed. They've asked us. There's been several rounds of inquiries with um, you know, information that we believe is, is frankly not really uh, relevant to just installing a, a bent pipe ground station, which is shuttling data from a satellite back to our, our servers in the US. 
but um, we've done our best to comply and uh, coming up on the two-year mark, it's kind of like enough is enough. Now, you have uh, ground stations in several other countries. That's right. Um, have you experienced anything to this degree of uh, issues? No. Um, and so, you know, yeah, I, when the last time I checked, there's eight different countries where, we, other than the U.S., that we've installed ground stations, gone through the process, and really it's just the RF licensing process um, because they recognize that we're already licensed in the U.S. Um, for remote sensing activities by NOAA. And so the and the RF licensing process in Canada is just fine. Um, I mean, yeah, sure, there's small areas where there might be room for improvement, but we went through that process. We got the license. We coordinated with other operators. Um, we mitigated all potential RF interference. Everything's great. But uh, when it comes to Canada, it stands out in a bad way as um, more difficult than it needs to be to approve a ground station. I mean, we're, we're not talking about... A nuclear arsenal here. We're talking about a satellite ground station. And now there's a facility right next door that is a government facility uh, that is privately managed, um, but um, that facility is uh, under the control of Natural Resources Canada. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, during the review process for the RSSA, for your license, NRCAN is actually consulted um, on your license. Do you see that as a conflict of interest? Uh, well, I will say that there are examples uh, in other places around the world where government missions, you know, civil and military and commercial missions and academic missions all can coexist with ground stations in the same place. And um, whatever potential security concerns there might be in that scenario have, have all been figured out. So Svalbard in Norway is a great example. There's um, sites like that in Fairbanks as well. And so uh, in terms of like what are the challenges of having two sites located next to each other, th these are solved problems. It's not that, that big of a deal. And do you have a sense that... Um, you know, your concerns are going to be addressed and that you're going to get that license anytime in the, in the near future? I'm hopeful. Uh, I think that once the decision makers realize that we're serious about moving those antennas if they don't act, um, and we intentionally gave them some time. So we could have done this tomorrow uh, because we've been waiting for, for quite a while. But uh, we, we've, we've set the June 1 deadline because we think that's an appropriate amount of time to, to get us uh, a reasonable response. But we're dead serious about moving the antennas out if we don't get that, that response by that date. And what does it say about foreign investment in Canada, especially in the space sector? Well, I'm, I'm already hearing from other people that uh, they're hesitant or avoiding investing in Canada because of, because of us as a case study. Um, and, you know, listening to GAC uh, speak at, you know, at sessions uh, here today at the symposium, they they continue to come at it from this kind of like national security that satellite imagery is this scary dangerous thing and um, I think that's a big mistake and I think that because they have that bias and that skew for um, imagery that is commonplace is being collected by all kinds of different actors you can open up Google Maps and get this kind of stuff uh, already and so I think that that's that's one of the challenges there is that not only are the regulations old and uh, will take a long time to update if 
the political will has even gathered to do that, the way that it's being interpreted today is is totally skewed from this security perspective, which is, in my opinion, um, not in line with reality. So would you say that Global Affairs Canada, Canada is stuck in the 20th century and here we are the 21st century and they're just not adapting to, to the realities of the world? With respect, with respect to, you know, um, regulating remote sensing imagery, yeah, totally. Okay, so you, you actually, uh, other than the ground station, you actually have a business uh, in Canada, uh, office in Canada as well, in Alberta, I believe. Lethbridge, that's right. Lethbridge. Um, any news, any new products uh, to talk about? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, we're, we've, we've been, you know, via the heritage of Blackbridge Rapida, we've been in Lethbridge for quite some time. We're, we're continuing our operations there. Um, it's quite a successful uh, unit for us. And so we, we work with, um, you know, federal and provincial governments in Canada uh, selling imagery products and providing open public uh, data sets in certain cases. And um, we also work quite well with Anarchan as a customer. Um, and so it's just one of those things where, you know, the government has many different uh, heads to it. And so I think that it's just unfortunate that one s- small section is, um, is so difficult, whereas all of our other relations in Canada, both on the government and the commercial side, are actually quite productive. And um, the Lethbridge office is a big part of that. And uh, we, we will continue all of that. Uh, aside, you know, regardless of what's going on with the antenna licensing. I think I, I, I read somewhere this morning that you had said that you thought that um, uh, Global Affairs Canada maybe shouldn't be uh, regulating right. this. It should be moved into another agency, perhaps, I said. Yeah, and I think that that better parallels what we have in the U.S. So NOAA is under the Department of Commerce. As part of the remote sensing review process, they're consulting all of the other government agencies um, including the defense and intelligence ones, but it's it's coming from a commercial, you know, Department of Commerce um, advocacy point, and and that works quite well in the U.S. Whereas in in Canada, it's Global Affairs, which has this you know non-proliferation and disarmament mandate and all that kind of stuff. You know, the minister is focusing on NAFTA. Um, negotiations right now like she has bigger fish to fry right but but for whatever reason the GAC license has to be signed by her office so which is you know it's no wonder we get put in the the bottom of the pile so it's these types of structural things that um, I think if you don't fix those we're just going to continue to run into these issues and you know from a remote sensing standpoint you know Canada is not a very friendly place to do business. And uh, while you're here on this trip, are you meeting with Global Affairs Canada? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're in, in uh, constant communication with them. We, know, we provide them with information as they ask. But, uh, and it's not just you, from what I understand. KSAT as well that's has right. been talking with Global Affairs Canada to the point where the Prime Minister of Norway yes. and the Ambassador have also been intervening to... That's right. There's been a lot of high-level attention on this uh, to no avail, and that's one of the really frustrating things is because KSAT um, is serving other customers, um, including the Sentinel missions. And so the European Space Agency is trying to downlink in Inuvik, but GAC is blocking that because they have this slow and... and okay. Canada is a, a partner That's right. ESA. That's what I'm saying. That you know, The one hand of the government is kind of uh, impeding the other. Would you consider moving out your other assets out of Canada? 
So it's really the, the, the difficulty uh, has been with the remote, remote sensing regulations. So um, we're actually also moving the RapidEye satellites out of Canada. Um, we found ourselves in this double licensed situation where um, the RapidEye satellites kind of remained as a Canadian asset, uh, but were being licensed by the US regulators and also Canada. So it doesn't make sense to, to double license those. So we're moving the RapidEye satellites out of Canada into the US. Um, but yeah, we're going to keep going strong with, with our Lethbridge um, office and uh, continuing to work with Canadian customers, providing value to Canadian citizens. All that uh, keeps going. It's just the remote sensing regulations that are broken and it hurts. And if GAC comes around and gives you a license, then start from scratch and, you know, build up? Yeah, because, I mean, we, we, we moved to Inuvik because we wanted to put uh, ground stations there. And, um, yeah, if we get the license and we're able to operate there, then, yeah, we, we think that's a good sign and we can work together with GAC to improve processes going forward. But we need, we need to see something. Well, I'd like to thank Mike for being my guest uh, this week on the Space Q podcast. I hope you'll be a guest uh, again in the future. My pleasure. I'd love to. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Q podcast. We really appreciate feedback. And to help us, we ask you consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. We're on Twitter with the username at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and podcasts on our page at The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.